Welcome to Palestine Deep Dive, where I'm joined by Ambassador Hussam Zomlot. And uh, uh, Hussam is uh, the head of the Palestinian mission to the United Kingdom. Welcome. Thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, I should just tell you something about Hussam uh, and his history. Uh, Hussam is a Palestinian diplomat. He's an academic and an economist. And before his posting to the United Kingdom, he served as head of the PLO mission to the United States. Um, and of course, as we know, the PLO mission to the US in Washington was closed by President Trump. Uh, and after the United States, United States under the Trump administration had decided to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is, of course, as we know, um, in breach of international law. Now, Hussam is a senior member of Fatah. He's a strategic advisor to the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, he previously served as director of Fatah's Commission uh, for Foreign Relations. And before entering politics, he was a professor of public policy at Birzeit University. He was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and an instructor at the University of London. And he's also worked as an economist with the United States I beg your pardon, United Nations Special Coordinator's Office, uh, office in Palestine. And I think it would be very interesting for our viewers if we can begin actually really by talking to Hussam about his family because, you know, Hussam's family uh, lost their home, you lost your home and your livelihood um, back in 1948 during the Nakba and for people who don't know what the Nakba is, is all about. I mean, the Nakba is essentially when Palestinians were driven in huge numbers, at least 750,000, I think, were driven from their homeland. Um, and uh, to this day, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are outside historic Palestine. They're living in Jordan and many other countries. And uh, your family was driven out by militia and settlers into refugee camps, and I think that you were also born in um, in, uh, in in Rafa in a in a refugee camp. Um, so before we sort of get on to you know uh, the issues that are happening around us today and some of the contemporary um, the, what's actually happening news-wise around us, I just wanted to to find out something for the benefit of our viewers about you because your story is a very, very powerful one. Unfortunately, it's not an unusual one because so many people lost their homes. So many people have never gone back. And one thing that has certainly struck many of us at Palestine Deep Dive over the past few years is how many families were displaced, how many families have never been able to return to their homelands, and also how difficult it is for Palestinians who are still there in the historic homelands to move from one part to another. You can't travel from the West Bank to Gaza or vice versa, or East Jerusalem to West Bank. It's an extraordinary situation. Not many people really understand it. So I just wanted to begin by asking you something about your early memories, really, Ambassador. What happened um, that you can remember to your family? And have you ever managed to, to go back to your historic home to your village I mean what you know what has the Nakba meant to you and to, and to many people that you knew and other families too 
thank you thank you mar for having me first and uh, thank you for asking that question i mean uh, there is a great deal of confusion uh, use of different terminologies about palestine because it's an aggression on the top of an aggression on the top of another and it's crucial to pinpoint it right from the beginning that this was a colonial settler colonialism exercise that has seen the Palestinian people ethnically cleansed from our homes. The 750,000 mm. at the time were two-thirds of the Palestinian people. Some of these uh, refugees uh, had to take refuge in Gaza or in the West Bank or in countries, uh, neighboring countries around Palestine like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria and what have you. Um, Gaza today has more than two-thirds of its population as refugees. And therefore, it is absolutely crucial that we focus on the events that happened 75 years ago, not only on the events that happened 55 years ago, because that does miss the whole picture. Mm -hmm. When Israel occupies the remaining part of Palestine, the 22%, that is the West Bank, is Jerusalem mm -hmm. and Gaza, it had already committed the crime of ethnic cleansing, the crime of transfer by force, which is a crime against humanity and the war crime very well defined in international law. As for my own personal upbringing, the refugee camp is not an easy place to live in, but I think it was one of the most uh, rich experiences of my life. And when I'm asked what has contributed to who you are, I always start with the Rafah, mm. Shabura refugee camp. My family hailed from a small village called Simpson, to the uh, uh, south of uh, Palestine, uh, which has become later Israel. And the entire village was forced out, like all the villages and the towns around them, and the hub of it at the time, which was Ashdod, Al-Majdal. Um, and uh, part of my family, including my own grandfather and father, who was born in Simpson, uh, 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 walked south, southward southward, uh, uh, so hence Gaza. Some went eastward, Jordan. So this is the first story that families were ununited, disunited, mm -hmm. families were scattered all over. Uh, the catastrophe was not just the loss of our material base as in the land and the property, which is severe in itself, but was the loss of the fabric of the society, the roots of the society. Um, Yet, our parents and grandparents have made every effort possible to shield us as children mm -hmm. from that experience. And they made it absolutely clear to live for us as children as a normal life as possible. Yeah. And because of that collective tragedy and collective suffering, the Nakba, the society was absolutely in an utter strong state of solidarity. So I remember that I usually one have one mother. I, ha I used to have 20 mothers because the entire neighborhood of the camp are your mothers and your fathers. There was that collective sort of way of living and collective way of healing. Uh, and I mean it, 20 mothers, like one of them will just grab me and take me to the shower and the other grab me and I'm cooking this and that. There was such a communal, communal life which brings in you that connection to your people brings in you that belonging uh, uh, to your identity and uh, not only to your immediate family but to your mm -hmm. bigger family that you are the son of a much bigger 
Uh, and why was I born in Rafah? Rafah is the very last point, the, the, the most southern city of Palestine, mm-hmm. after Rafah. Actually, there is an Egyptian Rafah, but Rafah, Palestinian yes. Rafah, an Egyptian Rafah. So Rafah is exactly on the border with Egypt because my grandparents were walking with all the uh, their fellow Palestinians, ethnically cleansed, being shelled. They wanted to walk as far as possible from the atrocities mm-hmm. and the killings, but they did not want to cross the borders out of Palestine. And I was born right on the borders because the Shabura refugee camp is literally on the borders of uh, Egypt. So that's another memory of, you know, wanting to shield, to protect their families from the attacks, Mm. but at the same time did not want their families to be born out of Palestine. So there are many vivid memories, Mark, uh, but the key one of all of this is that the refugee camp has really gave me uh, 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 what it takes to grow up and to learn a about my uh, grandfathers and fathers uh, uh, suffering but also to learn about the strength uh, of my society the beauty of my society yeah. the culture of my society the different foods of my society because the camp was made of people coming from different Mm-hmm. different towns and therefore you are also exposed to different you know uh, have you ever been able to return to your home to your family's home yes yeah. my grandfather took me i was six years old i remember he took me first time to uh, his original home uh, which was scattered stones like all other homes in that village uh, simpson they had destroyed, destroyed it. it completely they kept some you know mm. stone structures of the homes and it's empty. It's not mm. like they destroyed it and they built something in it, or they kept the homes and they lived in it like they did in other places. In our village, they completely lived and destroyed, destroyed it and kept it until this day, empty, yeah. very empty. Uh, you see, if I, if you, I may, if I may the, the act, the yeah. act, the, you know, the revengeful act. This is not about just inhabiting a land. This is about destroying, and co- yeah. uh, so nobody can claim to yes. come back. But my grandfather managed to uh, find his uh, uh, fig tree. And that was the the experience that I remember all of my life because he was looking and looking. He could not locate the exact house until he found the fig tree that he planted. He planted and you could see his smile and then my smile because we went in the summer when the fig leaf was already there and still fruiting, still fruiting. And I remember him telling me, if this fig leaf is still fruiting, one day, Hussam, in your lifetime, and if not in yours, maybe in your children, you will come and eat from this fig, uh, fig, fig tree. So it's that environment. And you know what's the biggest irony of all this? At the time when he drove me, it was the late 70s. Mm-hmm. So there were no borders. Israel had occupied Gaza and the West Bank. So you could drive your car uh, from anywhere to anywhere in historic Palestine. No checkpoints. Mm-hmm. No, nothing. It took us something like 30 minutes to drive from the refugee camp to our destroyed village. And the irony in a child, and I kept asking my grandfather and my father at the time, why don't we go back you know, as yes, a child? Yes. I mean, it just it took us, you know, I, I barely finished my sandwich in the car. Why don't we go back? What is preventing you, father, from building? our house again and I like it better because it's uh, more on the beach and you know has better uh, landscape and surrounding 
the, what hits me the most is what separates between you and your original home is half an hour by car, mm-hmm. yet you mm-hmm. are unable to go back. That was the, the epitome of injustice. Yes, and you see, I think this is why I think this is very important, for, especially for British audiences, because very often you get called upon to appear in the British media, and it will, more often than not, I've watched it, it'll be, we have the Palestinian ambassador, we're going to ask him about the uh, latest violence in Israel-Palestine, and particularly violence against Israelis. It's, there's never any context. They will argue there's not enough time for it, but actually... You know, the British have taken a long time, it seems to me, to begin to understand their role, historically, as a colonial power, in actually creating some of the boundaries and some of the countries and some of the situations that we live through now. And only just becoming to, coming to terms, if you like, with, for instance, partition in India, or partition in Ireland, or settler colonialism in Rhodesia and South Africa. And yet there's a, there's a sticking point, a dam, a blocking point, that means that there's no real discussion about Britain's role in Palestine. So my question to you is, when I look at that historic footage of the flag, British flag being pulled down in the mandate, and for people watching this, the British after the Ottoman Empire was defeated, but largely with Arab armies, took the mandate for Palestine. But when that Union flag was pulled down, in uh, Haifa, I think in 1948, there were no Palestinians there, no Palestinian Arabs. It was just Israelis. So what is your, what is your thought about all of that? Was the decision made back in 1948 that essentially this new arrangement, this partition of Pal- was, it was over for the Palestinians back then. The British walked away and, and yet there is a historic responsibility that the British still won't face up to. Well, it didn't start, Mark, in 1948, Mm -hmm. the whole British uh, responsibility and role. It started in 1917 Mm -hmm. with the Balfour, the infamous Balfour Declaration. 76 words, exactly. In these words, Britain promises our land without consulting us. That colonial arrogance. Mm -hmm. And in that declaration, they promise to establish uh, a homeland for the Jewish people with one condition, that that homeland, that state, would respect the religious and civil rights of minorities. Mm -hmm. The British Empire at the time has turned us, the indigenous native population, who have lived there for millennia, who have produced almost every prophet, the cardinal of civilization and the hub and the bridge between East and West, who at the time we owned 98% of the land, Mm -hmm. they turned us into minorities with no political or collective or national rights, only, remember, Mm -hmm. civil and religious. So we are only allowed to pray in our Mm -hmm. own home, Mm -hmm. in our own land, only allowed to pray. And since then, things have have really begun. The real beginning, the starting point of our catastrophe, Nakba, Mm -hmm. of our oppression, started in 1970. And therefore, I'm glad you're asking this question because Britain has a very unique moral, historical, and political, and legal, actually, 
responsibility. And this is not by way of creating blame, but by way mm. of seeking leadership and statesmanship mm. by the United Kingdom to right all the wrongs, to correct the history, and to do what is right. And that puts on the UK an extra pressure to actually do so. Yes. So I wanted to ask you because... And by the way, Mark, yeah. let, me, let me come again here. Because two years after the Balfour Declaration, Britain was entrusted by the United Nations, the League of Nations. That's right, the for the mandate. Yeah. To take the mandate of Palestine to actually sort it out and make sure yes. that the rights of the majority at the time, mm. us, that the, the, the region is stable and the promises to the Arab League and the Arab uh, you know, nations. And Britain took the mandate over Palestine, entrusted by the rest of the world, and guess what? They took the mandate of Palestine to curb and crush Palestinian nationalism and resistance and to actually mm. see the birth of that promise they make, the homeland, and not care for the ca catastrophe mm. that happened to my grandparents that we just started talking yes. about, leaving the mess all behind, and since then, not enabling us in a real way to actually yes. reverse that very unjust situation. Um, and by the way, I mean, you know, most people in this country have seen this great film, Lawrence of Arabia. D.H. Lawrence is seen as a great British hero who actually believed in the promise that was made by the British at the time and always felt betrayed in his life until his untimely end at that betrayal. And when people understand things like that, they begin to see things in a slightly different way. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, essentially the campaign for Palestinian independence has been continuing for, well, over a century. And in 1988, um, in Algiers, uh, you know, I think about, about 138 out of 193 member states of the United Nations have ended up recognizing um, Palestinian independence from that declaration uh, in Algiers. Um, and of course, you've got non-observer status at the, United States, at the United Nations, a very powerful diplomatic presence, and a lot of support in the General Assembly historically. Um, and, and also, Palestine has been recognized by a number of uh, European countries, but not Britain. We are sitting here in your mission. It's not an embassy yet. Um, and many people, from what you were, we were just talking about then, about Britain's historic responsibility uh, and the need for leadership, and yet we still have a situation whereby Britain has not recognised Palestine, which would be a very important thing for, to happen. Um, more importantly, in many respects in recent weeks, has voted against that vote in the General Assembly for the International Court of Justice to examine the legal uh, implications of the occupation. So what's your message for British politicians? And also, I, I guess, because there may well be a change of government in a couple of years' time, for the official opposition in this country, which is the Labour Party, which has a commitment to recognise Palestine, what is your message for British politicians as to the importance of diplomatic recognition? To do what is right, not what is comfortable. And, um, uh, and to really represent Britain as Britain wants to be, which is global Britain that safeguards international legality and international law. If they safeguard international law, international law is clear. It has given the Palestinians the full right of self-determination and a state. And now in the United Nations, we are a, a state. We are an observer member, but a state, mm. the state of mm. Palestine. It's very regrettable. Britain has missed at least four opportunities, historic opportunities, to right the wrong 
And the beginning of that was an apology for all that we have discussed. Mm -hmm. And it is, apology is not weakness. Apology is strength. It's a recognition of people's suffering and your role. Apology allows you to lead the way and to have a legitimate role, but also recognition of the state of Palestine. Britain missed an opportunity in 1999 when the Oslo Accords concluded after five years, there was supposed to be a state. Britain and other Western powers should have said, okay, the Palestinians and the Israelis have signed this accord. They agreed to have a, a two states after the end of this interim period, five years, 1999. We recognize the state of Palestine and we give the two parties equal footing and we, we, we level the field. Britain did not do that. Again, in 2012, we go to the General Assembly. We seek membership of the state and the world vote with us, but Britain does mm. not. Again, in 2014, the United Kingdom Parliament votes overwhelmingly to recognize the state of Palestine, including conservative members, but Labour, you know, cross-party. Cross the UK government completely disregarded that. Another opportunity missed because the UK Parliament is not a charity. That is the political will of the British people. Mm -hmm. When they come and tell you, you have got to recognize the state of Palestine, they give you the platform and the, the opportunity to actually do so and correct that hundred years of wrong history. And the fourth opportunity, unfortunately, was missed in 2017. That was a hundred years for the Balfour Declaration. Yes. Uh, Prime Minister Theresa May had such an opportunity to actually say, okay, a hundred years on, we have seen all the agony and the suffering of the Palestinian people. We have seen the outcome of what has happened. We have never meant this to happen. And this is an opportunity to actually recognize yes. the state of Palestine. Yes. Missed. Yes. Missed. Instead, Theresa May comes out and say how proud we are to have issued the Balfour Declaration. Today we celebrate it. She puts wound, I'm sorry, she puts salt in mm. that deep wound. Yes, yes. And that's why our work here is to, is to help change these dynamics because we believe we have all what it takes in this country. We have the public opinion and the masses is changing. We have many, many friends in the political parties and in the parliament. And uh, uh, we believe that this issue is being discussed seriously in many British official uh, quarters. We no longer take the uh, uh, position that the UK will recognize in, in due time. This mm -hmm. doesn't add up because in due time means, or they tell us that after a final agreement is reached, that's the key sort of policy point. Once you reach a final agreement, we will recognize it's a matter of when, not if. And we tell them, if you are waiting for a final agreement, why did you recognize one state of the two states? Wait for the final agreement for the two states. And we know you will not be able to de-recognize uh, the state that you have recognized. It's better that you recognize the second state. It's easier. It's less costly. Yes. Uh, but you know what's the essence? What's the very heart of we wait for a final agreement to recognize? What is it? What it's is it? Delaying. No, no, I'm sorry. Huh? No. <clears throat> they are telling us and they are telling Israel and everybody involved that only if and when Israel accepts us to recognize, we will recognize. Mm. That is not leadership. So, so going from that, we, you've just had Secretary of State Blinken, who's gone to Israel this past few days, and uh, he, he describes the West Bank. No mention of the occupied Palestinian territories. He goes to Israel, he says, I'm going to Israel, I'm going to the West Bank. So he and his, his government have the power, should they wish, to bring about the situation you just talked about, to bring about a settlement, 
uh, by pushing people together if they really want to, as they arguably could be doing in Russia and Ukraine. But they're not doing that. And they have the power. Senator, uh, Secretary of State Blinken has the power to say to the Israeli government, particularly this government, which they're very uncomfortable with, um, if you don't sit down with the Palestinians and work out this two-state solution, which they still say they believe in, we're going to turn the money tap off. It never happens, does it? So what is it going to take to get a degree of, of, of alacrity, of, 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 prior, of prioritizing the situation in Palestine? We have a situation in eastern Ukraine where the, the international community can move in days to have the, the International Court of Justice investigate war crimes. It can take years for anything to happen in Palestine. What is it that's going to stop this kind of complete hit, lack of consistency when it comes to occupation? Because from where many of people are coming from now, it appears that you can be occupied if you're Christian and you're white in Ukraine. But when it comes to Palestine, well, it's a different matter. So what, change, what changes that? Well, and that, that hypocrisy and that double standards and selectivity is really creating content worldwide with the people who are uh, watching and following all that. And they see what you are doing. And they see what is happening. And you know what's the key thing there? The world, the people of the world are watching that international law, international rules are applied only on foes. When it comes to friends, they are completely quitted. They are put above the law. In fact, it was in the words of Prime Minister Johnson, Boris Johnson, when he issued a public letter saying why he opposes us going to the ICC. He mentions mm. in the letter because Israel is mm. our ally and friend. So mm. when Israel, mm. when any entity is your friend, the rules mm. do not apply. When it is your foe, the rules apply. This sheer hypocrisy. I mean, the U.S., you asked me about the U.S. Okay, Secretary Blinken visited Ramallah. He said all the right things. Uh, you know, they are pro-two-state solution, i.e. international resolutions, that the Palestinians and the Israelis have to have equal measures of freedom and security and, and dignity and opportunity. We agree. We agree with all that. Uh, and that all unilateral acts, i.e. the illegal colonial settlements, mm. must cease. And we agree. But either Mr. Blinken has no approach or he has the wrong approach. And I think he has the wrong approach because to achieve that, you need the power of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you are absolutely right in your assessment. If the U.S. wants, it happens. Mm -hmm. And because it happened before in the Madrid conference in 1992, uh, the, the U.S. president at the time, uh, uh, President uh, 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 Bush, the father, uh, brought Shamir kicking and screaming. Mm in spite of his will. So the U.S. and many other cases when the U.S. decides it happens. The question is, why the U.S. is not deciding? And, you know, you mentioned Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. arms the Ukrainian resistance, and in our case, the U.S. arms the occupier, yes. the colonizer, the besieger, yeah. the one that commits ethnic cleansing, mm. the one that commits annexation. What's the heart of international law? Mm. What is the essence of the pillar of international law? The inadmissibility of acquiring land by force. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the heart of it. That it was created after the Second World War and the mayhem and the horrors of the Second World War. So what is the difference between annexing land in 
in Ukraine and occupying land in Ukraine and annexing land in the occupied West Bank. I think the essence is that still there are some quarters in the U.S. and elsewhere that sees the Palestinians not worthy of the same rights, not worthy of the national rights, that they see Israel of much greater strategic value to discuss the common rules that apply on everything. Yes, but that's, sorry that's to interrupt you, but they can't get Israel, for instance, to aid Ukraine right now. So this idea that uh, Israel is this fantastic security advice, uh, you know, ally. Uh, doesn't always stack up. And you just wonder. So we have a Biden administration that is essentially keeping the same kind of policies as the Trump administration that hasn't reversed the decision over Jerusalem. Um, it uh, it makes more emollient noises, possibly. The, the, the visit from someone like Blinken would not have happened under Trump. But at the same time, you could argue that at least Trump and his administration were honest in their support for Israel. Um, so, so, so what is it that, is it, I mean, do you, do you think that looking no, 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 at... Sorry, no, 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 Trump was know, very destructive. Oh, yes, I'm not, not, he, he was very destructive. Yeah. What I'm saying, I suppose, is that the, the opportunities to reverse some of this, it, it hasn't happened, really, from the, from the Biden administration. He hasn't reversed a lot of these Trump changes. Even also, by the way, when it comes to Western Sahara, an occupation that the U.S. supports. I mean, crazy. So what is it, do you think, though, that looking at this administration Israel, which even for people in the American establishment is beyond the pale. You've got a, a finance minister proudly declaring himself to be a fascist homophobe. You've got a Ben Gavir who's got, a, I don't know how many convictions behind his name, and essentially a, a racist. These are people that the Americans are now having to deal with. This isn't normal, normalcy, is it? So does this and the threat also of, a, of, a, of another intifada, if you like, possibly it's already happening, I don't know. Perhaps this is what will change the American view, because they don't want, they don't want to lose control of a situation. They don't want a situation to explode beyond their control. Do you think that the situation is now so dangerous in Palestine that the Americans could change their policy? I hope so. Uh, and they might actually lose any impact and influence because what Trump did and then the lack of any reversal by Biden is diminishing the U.S. influence. Because, you know, if you actually move your embassy, mm -hmm. if you completely take one side, uh, if you close our mission, our diplomatic representation in Washington, and you close your consulate general in East Jerusalem, occupied Jerusalem, and remember it was established in 1844, that consulate, long before Israel was established. And if you cut all of your funding to the Palestinians as Trump did, then you are nobody. I mean, in the end, you have no leverage uh, on anybody. Uh, and now with the changes all around us and the new world powers that are present physically in the region, the U.S. has to think seriously and mm. think twice of what role and what impact and what influence it wants. And the key word in this whole discussion about the Israeli government, Mark, is accountability. You have all these convicted racists and criminals in the Israeli government in very high offices because of the lack of accountability. And why do we have lack of accountability? It's because of the US, sometimes the UK, the West in general, going out of their way to shield Israel from any scrutiny Mm -hmm. Any accountability that explains your earlier question about voting against us and uh, you know referring Israel yeah. for an advisory opinion of the ICJ, the International yes. Court of Justice, yeah. Yeah. and therefore, 
if you really want to change the dynamics, be it <clears throat> in the UK or in the US, vis-a-vis -vis Israel, and if you really want to change the dynamics in Israel, and if you really want to see the beginning of electing people who would actually uh, uh, produce a, a peace process and end this situation, you've got to associate illegality with consequences. Mm -hmm. And you've got to create accountability for all this wrongdoing for all these years. And short of doing so, you will find Bengvir and Smotrich to be dovish in five years' time because the Israeli public, very comfortable, no cost associated with the illegality, will keep producing and electing even more, more extreme people. Netanyahu, who was seen to be the most right-wing mm. in the Israeli mm. politics only a few years back, now he's seen to be even dovish compared to these guys. And the trajectory of things will keep yes. going in that direction. So that's why we are adamant about the use of international law and the international judicial system, and not only the ICJ, but the ICC, because the ICC is meant to stop these young mm. soldiers or officers from bullying the triggers, killing children, killing civilians, killing this with full impunity. The ICC is a deterrent, <clears throat> primarily individual deterrent, but the ICJ is a collective deterrent, yeah. i.e. we want to revisit the whole system of occupation, colonization, apartheid, and besiegement. And therefore, uh, so long as the West continues to shield Israel, I don't think they can have a genuine, yes. credible role in any peace making. The moment, the moment you see the US or the UK vote for referring illegality to the international system, a moment when you start counting when these countries will actually contribute to peacemaking in our region. That's very interesting. And this is, this is a terrible question to ask you in a way, but do you think in a way that things almost get worse so bad that they then begin to get better? Because you're talking about the trajectory of these Israeli politicians, which in our lifetimes we've seen becoming more and more extreme. And we've seen this elsewhere in the world too, by the way, another settler I mean, I remember as a growing up with Rhodesia, they became more and more extreme. And then it just got so bad that the, the, the world could not tolerate this anymore. Do you think that's a trajectory? It's not, it's not a preferable one because all the suffering that's going to happen in the meantime. Yeah, I, the problem here, Mark, is that how, uh, what could be worse than this? What could be worse? And we yeah. keep saying we are at the bottom rock and then it's even worse and worse and worse. I think if, if it's bleakest before dawn, then it is getting very bleak, really mm. bleak. With the current Israeli government, with the killing at will, with the full impunity, with the rampage of the settlers in the occupied West Bank everywhere, with Palestinian people being absolutely uh, brutalized uh, on the hundreds of checkpoints, with them not knowing if they send their children to school, they would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, arrested or uh, uh, shot at at the, at the checkpoints or even gassed, you know, the tear gas that they throw into schools, the whole thing is becoming a completely unbearable. So, I'll tell you the truth, my real hope is not in the governments. The governments are calculating more than they are uh, uh, implementing a principle. My hope as far as Israel-Palestine is concerned, as, as far as the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian people is in the people of the world. Uh, my hope is in the Arab world and despite and regardless of all mm -hmm. that happened, you've seen what happened in Qatar in the World Cup. Mm -hmm. You've seen the Moroccan 
team when they won mm. the semi final. Oh, yes. They, yes. F- they, they had the Palestinian yes. flag. The street is, st- is with, with you big which is, time. Which, which is something we can yeah. capitalize on and we can lean on and rely yes. on and bank on. But we also have the people of the world and we mm. have the hundreds of thousands. Did you see the demonstrations mm. in London in 2021 mm-hmm. when Israel attacked Gaza and before it, Sheikh Jarrah yes. and ethnic linguistic? I was there. I was absolutely amazed mm. to see more than 200,000 people in the streets of London uh, supporting Palestine and condemning the Israeli acts. Uh, uh, remember, you mentioned South Africa uh, earlier. Governments came very late in the game for South Africa. Yes. Very late in the game, including the Thatcher government and the Reagan administration. Mm. In fact, just almost, this much. Uh, That's what she said just, just when it came the, to sanctions. Just this. But much. she was one, and the whole of the Commonwealth against her. Mm. But what what changed things? It was the, the the great people of Britain, the great people of Europe, and everywhere else. The anti-apartheid movement. You know, South Africa House stands in the middle of Trafalgar Square here mm. in, in London a symbol of what London did because the whole thing emanated from London. This was the capital of anti-apartheid. As a Palestinian ambassador myself, I go all over here, all over your country, I see that happen. So it's a matter of time when the people will deliver their verdict. Mm. There is a lot of resistance against them, like happened in South Africa. It took Mm. hundreds of years, my friend. Things Mm. take time. But the trajectory of things are definitely in Mm. the direction of Mm. the right and and the justice. Yeah. And the more involvement by all these mm. citizens of the world, the more action by these citizens uh, 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 of the world, and in the end, governments will have to follow. Well, because I wanted, because we, you know, we can't take up too much more of your time, Ambassador, because I wanted to almost end with um, more positive, some of the positive notes that you've just been sounding then, from your visits around this country, what you see elsewhere in the world. We have seen a transformation, even over the past year or two, about whether it comes from Bethlehem or Amnesty International or the United Nations, uh, Israeli apartheid has entered the lexicon big time right across the West. There is much more awareness of what's going on, partly, possibly, you may agree or not, through social media. People aren't just waiting for a documentary that might come once a year. They can see almost every day, which is why there are Israeli members of the Knesset who want to stop filming of what's going on in the occupied territories, as you know. So, are you are you kind? Do you, do you take um, some hope from that? Are you optimistic from the fact that you, what you've seen amongst people is is, is uh, things are moving in the right way, but also because they're being empowered by the information that they're able to see now. The resistance against us is huge, especially by the information and the media outlets. There is a lot of effort by the mainstream media in this country, Mm. in the US, in the West in general, to stifle the debate, to frame it, to deflate it. Uh, Look at the last couple of weeks. I mean, headlines of BBC and others. The BBC, the headline when Bengvir raided Al-Aqsa Mosque in the early hours of the morning. What was the headline? Palestinian rage at Minister (laughs) Bengvir. So what was the news? That we we are angry. There is a rage. The news Mm. is not his illegal act of actually uh, uh, invading a mosque that is a place of prayer for Muslims. And the same thing goes on and on. I can give you a hundred examples. I was interviewed the last few days by several British and international uh, uh, media outlets and always, always attempts and, and focus on deflating us from the key issues of drawing some false symmetry. But guess what? That has been happening for a long time. They are losing the grip 
and the control, thanks to many things, including the social media, by the way, and citizen activism, if I may, the individuals, the youth of this country, the youth of, 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 of Palestine, the youth of the Arab world, and the youth everywhere. But also, if you look at a longer perspective, when Israel was established 75 years ago, people here in this country saw that as a, a, a miracle. They bloom in the desert. The you know the the the, the miracle uh, that that has brought um, this state against all the Arab armies. Remember the socialist experience. Remember mm -hmm. the kibbutzim. Mm -hmm. Actually, the generation of the fifties and the sixties. Most of the British people spent time mm -hmm. in the Israeli kibbutzim. Mm -hmm. The you know the the social. But where are we now in comparison to that time? I think Israel's reputation, Israel's situation has been exposed. I think things have changed. I don't think anybody in his right mind or her right mind would tell you that Israel is, is the beacon of democracy and the only democracy. People now know. It takes time. It's a long journey. It's very mm -hmm. painful. It has seen so much bloodshed, so many sufferings, thousands of Palestinians mm -hmm. killed, hundreds of thousands imprisoned, home, homes demolished, curfews and besiegement, Gaza under siege mm. for 16 years and ongoing. It's unprecedented, unparalleled, unmatched suffering at this mass gross level for sustained 100 years. But yet, yet, I do believe that things are going in our direction. And finally, um, Ambassador, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, you know, growing up in this country, in the British Labour Party, where many of the strongest supporters of Palestine were often Jewish socialists. Uh, and you yourself have, have said when you've been asked about this, we're not interested in the who our oppressors are, we're interested in the nature of the occupation and defeating it. What do you think of what we see increasingly over the past two or three years, and it's been a deeply, deeply unpleasant thing, especially for many Jewish people who have been great supporters of Palestine, and are sometimes anti-Zionist. What do you say to, to, to those people who are constantly being shut down and accused of being anti-Semitic, who may be Jewish or they may not be, but who are supportive of Palestine? What do you have to say about this claim that is frequently made, that if you're supporting the Palestinians, you are somehow being anti-Semitic? Well, um, first of all, anti-Semitism is real. It does exist. We must fight it and fight it fiercely and uproot it. And nothing hurts the Palestinian issue more than anti-Semitism. And it happened. The history is very clear all over us. Uh, you know, the most heinous crime of the Holocaust and before it, Jews were prosecuted almost in every country. So anti-Semitism is vile and it must be uprooted. But so is the Israeli occupation. It's the same fight. And I think everybody who has principles will never fight anti-Semitism and not fight the Israeli colonial expansion in the West Bank, will never be able to claim that they have the same principles. And therefore, my, uh, my advice uh, to our friends is to keep on and go on. Uh, sometimes it is difficult. Uh, uh, I, I said it in many previous uh, uh, encounters. Our issue is not with the identity of our oppressors. In fact, there are many non-Jews in the Israeli army. There are Muslims and Christians in the Israeli army who are our oppressors. So our issue is not with the identity of our oppressors. Our issue is with the fact of our oppression. 
what we are struggling against is the oppression, not the identity of the oppressors. And this is something that we need to remind ourselves of all the time. And as you said, the biggest supporters of Palestine worldwide, not only in the UK, are Jewish people, Jewish leaders. I have many friends who are um, Jews. Our issue is not with the Jewish people, definitely. Our issue is with a state that has decided it wants to control our lives forever, despite our will. Our issue is that we have the birthright of being free, of being independent, of having to decide on our own lives and future. And we are not interested in a permanent military occupation or a permanent colonial settlement expansion. We are interested in having a neighborly relationship, but on, on equal footing. And we all respect the basic universal values and basic international provisions. Ambassador Zomlot, thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you to all who are watching. Please join us again next time at Palestine Deep Dive. So from the Palestine Mission here in London, thank you. Uh, awesome. Goodbye, and thank you once again to Ambassador Zomlot. <laughs>